Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape as we celebrate the 13-month anniversary of quarantine from my now nine-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California boasting as Mark McGrath I somehow only just noticed the other day yes a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign this is the Tully show I am your host Mike Tully joining me today once again the lead singer of Sugar Ray three-time champion of rock and roll Jeopardy as seen on the smash hit series The Masked Singer. Hello and welcome back our dear friend Mark McGrath. Tully, I'm so glad you discovered that wonderful Hollywood Hills uh Hollywood sign uh discovery. You know, it's, it a is, fant- it's a fantastic, you know, it's just nice to know it's there and be able to see mm-hmm. it as obstructed as it is. It's yeah. still a view. You know when they say partially obstructed ocean view for a house down the beach, it's still a view, man. It counts. It definitely, it definitely counts. In my case, there's a telephone pole running right through the center of it. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. My sign says Hoewood. That's so Hollywood. That's perfect. That's yeah. perfect. Yeah, fresh off a little mass Singer, which was crazy. Um, surreal. I got emotional in a nine-foot orca whale costume. I never thought that was going to happen. And I felt that show needed a little heavy metal representative. So I uh, went in there and did a couple Twisted Sister, well, one Twisted Sister song. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to take it. I thought I could finesse them and a little bit of energy. I'm never going to win a singing competition. But I got a chance maybe to advance a couple rounds in a giant orca costume. If I go the heavy metal route, you know, uh, you and I... Oh, we've said one of our much beloved genres. And then I went the uh, Brett Michaels, Every Rose Has Its Thorn route, which, you know, I tried to pluck at some hard strings and it promptly got me sent home. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. And, you know, I haven't obviously worked that hard. As you'd mentioned, 13 months in this pandemic, we're starting to come back to live events. So it was a blessing to be on that show. And I got my SAG insurance back up. So we're all good. Oh, really? I'm as somebody who is, I've called SAG a couple times in the last few months, so that would have been more of an abstract concept to me a few months ago. Congratulations. That's pretty cool. It is cool because they changed the uh, the qualifications in the last couple of years. You used to have to make, if you made like 15 grand a year in any capacity, whether it's royalties or whether it was a couple uh, one-offs you did, you could have your insurance, you know, and, and I had family insurance and all that. They've upped that to 35 grand a year. Uh, that's significantly more. You have to, you know, be on a couple shows. I mean, they they just took out about fifty percent of the people they were insuring uh, by making that move. So it's a big to do in the SAG entertainment world. So having that insurance yeah. is uh, something I'm grateful for. It's a double double insurance tax. Well, that's that's great to hear your vocal range. Now, I was not surprised. I would have been surprised if I hadn't spent as much time podcasting with you. For example, singing. Twisted Sister, I can see where the guests, the judges had trouble guessing you because you tend to live in your speaking vocal range when you sing, but you can't, I've heard you just whip into stuff here on air. You can, you can get up there and you did. I watched the clip. You did well. I appreciate that, Mike. You know, I, I, we've always loved, I've loved that genre forever. Um, and, and and I'm in another band called Royal Machines and we Mm -hmm. do a lot of harder rock stuff and, uh, and that nature and coming up our band was a cover band. I mean, we would do Judas Priest songs badly, but we would attempt them. 
you know. Uh, and if you listen to our first record, it's got some more aggressive things. So I think you're right. It, it fully hoodwinked the judges because they're used to the radio hits of Sugar Ray, not necessarily doing the deeper dives of the catalog or following my career, obviously. So I uh, I almost couldn't get my head out of that whale costume. They were saying Dave Grohl. Bon Jovi. They said Sammy Hagar. Some of the some of the guests you didn't hear were Sammy Hagar, um, uh, Billy Corgan, who I'm still apologizing to for, uh, and just some other guests. And like, look, that show it tries to elate everybody's spirits. It's a competition, but it's trying to make everybody feel good. But they're trying to guess who you are. If they knew it was me, they would have guessed it. So I was able to fool them with a little bit of a twisted sister. And I surp- I'm a little bit surprised that Every Rose didn't get them because, I mean, whenever I see acoustic guitar, I'm playing that. You know, it's just coming. It, it's happening. You know, and I've done it a lot on stage. You can't beat G to C. Was there an actual live audience there? How did they work that out? Uh, yes, there was on TV. Yeah, I see. I see. Yeah, yes, there was on TV, but due to the you know yeah. protocol, there was not, which made it a little bit different, you know. Uh, so none of like showbiz tricks I could have kind of pulled out would really work. Not that you can do a lot of showbiz tricks in a nine foot whale costume, but they did a beautiful way. Uh, <laughs> I saw, you, I saw the, you. I saw you pointing to the crowd. I, I, oh, I, I did a little bit of come yeah. on, let me. I tried to. Do, I tried to do a little bit some showbiz, uh, but. It was a, it was a lot of fun, man. You know, it was something like I have ten year old twins. You've got you've got kids. It's something they love. I was able to keep it from them, so the reveal was a big deal. And my kids are about to turn eleven, and they're they're getting into that age now where mom and dad aren't cool anymore. I thought it was teenage years. I've got news for parents out there. They moved they moved the goalposts a little bit. Uh, now it's uh, 11, 12, because you know TikTok and all that have really expedited they're they're growing up uh and my son was watching it the first week and he's going dad orca's kind of cool huh i'm like yeah he's all right you know but oh, inside i'm like yeah, oh, yeah. Good. oh my son had thought it was cool forever so when the reveal came down they were so shocked i wish i was filming them but i'm such an idiot from the old school actually i'm still in the moment i forgot about my phone so i missed the uh their actual organic reveal but it was fun it's great to be part of and like i said uh, you know, it, it, I, I was grateful for the work, you know, after the year we all had. Well, we are all grateful to have you back here. We are talking about this time around the new music releases of April 1981. And boy, are there a lot of them. I There are, I counted them. There are literally 30 new music releases that I would be happy to talk about that I feel you probably, you probably feel the same way about obviously some more uh, memorable and remembered than others. No true landmark albums. And I'm starting to notice that about the year of 1981. Don't think it was the greatest year in music history. As we've already sort of touched on, there's a uh, there's a lot of transition happening here. There's bands nearing the end, and there's bands beginning the beginning. I don't think we'll be playing, for example. So I I I got the thirty down to sixteen, knowing full well we'll probably get through about four of them. But- <laughs> We're a bit garrulous. Yes, indeed. I don't know that we're going to be able to listen to the debut from Modern English, but suffice it to say that band, (laughs) that, well, maybe we will. Suffice it to say that band was not going to be writing uh, Melt With You in April of 1981. They're still finding their way. There's just a lot of synths flying everywhere. Nobody really knows what's going on. Well, I think you've said uh, something very important. We kind of discussed this about the year of 81, early early 80s in, in, in general, late 70s. 
the, the record industry, uh, the market was going through this recycling of genres where the dinosaurs of the 70s were still making records, of course, and still having some success, but a whole new post-punk slash precursor to new wave was starting to form and, uh, and, and take place and germinate. And it led to the what would become modern Englishes, the Duran Durans, the culture club. So music was changing aesthetically. It was changing. It, it, had, it had to be completely broken down to punk rock. Punk rock wrung it. It choked the life out of it. Last bit of life out of it. But of course, these bands, like yes, there was still a a a, a, a market for them. But there was a a reinvention, a post-punk reinvention, which led to new which which led to new wave, which eventually led to boy bands. I mean, Duran Duran was a boy band when you think about it. But they started out like modern English. They started out like Spandau Ballet, a post-punk Joy Division gang of four, you know, knock around, you know. So it's an interesting time. 81, as boring as it might be for not having the classics, you can see music figuring out what was coming next. You know, it's a pretty amazing time to look back at, actually. I I agree. It's sort of fascinating in how unremarkable a lot of the music is. Right. Selling right. the absolute crap out of this. As I said, I've got at least two dozen songs we could talk about all that having been said. Van Halen... I think are up to album three at this point. No, the, I try always try to look into what was going on in the culture, particularly the music culture at this time. April of 1981 is the celebrated nuptials of Eddie Van Halen and Valerie Bertinelli, the the two most adorable people in American culture, fusing their brands to one another for an explosion of cuteness that warmed the hearts of of people the world over. Um, but at the same time. Van Halen released what I am led to believe is the darkest album they ever made with David Lee Roth, and that's Fair Warning. Now, at a certain point, I'm not a huge Van Halen fan. I definitely prefer the David Lee Roth stuff, with all due respect to Sammy. I, I really, Van Halen, the first Van Halen album is just so freaking good. I came to it late, but it's just awesome, and it holds up. At a certain point, when streaming music was a new thing and all of a sudden you could just listen to anything like this light bulb goes off. Hey, what about Van Halen? I should go and listen to their albums. And boy, after that first album, really more of a singles band Van Halen. Yeah. You know what? They almost gave up in the creativity. I think diver down or one of those records was like straight up covers record. I mean, it's amazing how many cover songs Van Halen released. You know what I mean? Like Pretty Woman, all these, all these strange, uh, for how talent they were, talented they were as songwriters, they have a lot of single, a cover singles released. So, supposedly, I'm sorry, um, sorry to interrupt you. That, supposedly that's all David Lee Roth. And one of the things that split them up was that David Lee Roth always thought they had a Money in the Bank single on every record. If they did one of those big cheesy covers, Eddie didn't want to do them anymore. No coincidence, David Lee Roth goes solo. California Girls is the first thing that he puts out. So. And it's the farthest thing away from Van Halen possible. There's no I, I, I read a right, exactly. I, I read a, a Van Halen uh, autobiography where they were saying that they, you know, they they were a covers band, mm-hmm. as most fans were in the '70s, and and playing all every you know juke joint in town, and just they'd play all these covers. So I think David felt really comfortable in the cover world because he was never the best singer. I always loved his voice, but technically, he's not considered a great singer. I don't think there would have been a better frontman in, in the world, regardless uh, of how good of a frontman he is, be beyond his voice. He was the voice for Van Halen. It just worked. You know, it was a perfect storm coming together. So I think 
having played so many covers, being a lead singer, I, I know you can always just sort of hang your hat on a cover on a record. At least we got a single. We've got something. You know, if you feel like maybe your writing isn't up to par, you can lean on a uh, 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 cover, certainly for like a backup single at the very least. You know, because David, he didn't want to give up that. Once you got, once you get a little taste, you don't want to give it up. So if you got to punch a few covers in there, you're going to. So I think that's where the, the big fight came through. And obviously Alex and Eddie want to do the uh, originals more. That's right. If there was a cover on Fair Warning, I I missed it. It's a brief album. It's like 30 minutes long. It's only got nine songs. And I do not recall eight of them. But just about everyone will recall the um, the one standout track and most likely the lead single from Fair Warning. This one right here. Good stuff. By by far my favorite Van Halen song. I love Is that. It? Oh, I I could listen to that all day long. I think it has the best of all Van Halen. Okay, you've got great drum accents from Alex in that that count 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 stuff, and then. Mm -hmm. It's the best. Michael Anthony is so underrated as a vocalist and a bassist. Oh I, I think he's oh like, God. he's like, there's so many, such incredible talent in that band. He's kind of the throwaway of the band. You know what I mean? There's just not enough room. There's not enough oxygen in the room for a David Lee Roth, uh, Eddie Van Halen, Alex Van Halen, and Michael Anthony. Uh, he's got, he is that high harmony you hear. That's unchained. That's all that high. That ungodly high is all Michael Anthony. And then I love the personality in the breakdown on that. You know, he goes, "Come on, Dave, give me a break." You know, I think Ted Templeman, producer, is actually saying that. One break coming up. You know, it just has all the personality. And then one of the meanest riffs I've ever heard in the history of rock and roll. So, unchained yeah. is just, to me the quintessential Van Halen song. One day we'll do an episode just on bands with crazy signature backup vocals. And they're, oh, yeah. they're love that right idea. up at the top. I love the story that I guess um, uh, he'd been the um, Michael Anthony had been the singer in his preceding band and was tired of singing high notes and was happy to be having that <laughs> on bass. <laughs> By the way, the only notes you'll be singing in Van Halen are, are, are dog whistle notes. Only you and some dogs can hear. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And it became their signature sound. You know, when you hear David Lee Roth, like by himself doing Van Halen songs, it, it, it's fine, but it just, it's missing that Michael Anthony high. I don't care who tries to do it. Wolfie tries to do it. I tried to do it and I saw Van Halen a few times and he, he did an admirable job, but the full voice Michael Anthony highs are what yeah. makes that Van Halen backing vocal sound, truly. Well, and when Diamond Dave went solo, of course, he would go and find other guitar players to go see. Anybody can find uh, a, a gunslinger on guitar, but go and listen to a lot of those songs. There's extremely Mike Anthony-esque backing vocals on a lot of the David Lee Roth solo oh, yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, Paradise, this must be yeah. just like, but it's still, there's yeah. a, a there's a tone, there's a tonality, there's yeah. a there's an effortless 
ness, if that's a word mm-hmm. that, that Michael Anthony does. He's not straining. It, it's it's just it's, it's it's when all the pieces fit together. That's Van Halen. Yeah, I'm surprised yeah. you came late to Van Halen Tully being a guitar player. You know, see, okay, okay. Here's a here's a hot take uh, on on something that's 50 years old. With all due respect, <laughs> Sorry, I'm with all due yeah. respect to Eddie. I, I've been trying to kind of find a song where he where he would do a straight solo. The stuff in the beginning, the pyrotechnics were so amazing. But I was a little disappointed that as a lead player, which is his, and I like his rhythm playing and I like his synth playing. There's a lot of Van Halen songs where it's time for just a nice melodic solo, and it's just he's almost like Tom Morello esque and like esque yeah. and like I'll make this noise and then I'll make that noise, and it's like, bro, or maybe you could just play a solo, dude. I know what you're saying, and I think he was kind of known for the histrionics, and that's why he probably tried to outdo himself. And like, I can never just do a nice, tasty C.C. Deville lick yeah. solo, or I'll get murdered by the purist. But when you yeah. think about some of the solo, I always think about this: if it's a great drum solo, and a, can you can you air drum the solo, and can you air guitar the whole solo through? Slash is the king of me being able to air guitar every solo, every note. And Eddie Van Halen has a lot of those too, whether it's Panama, uh, whether yep. it's Unchained, uh, uh, Finish What You Started, later uh, the Van Hagar era. So I know what you're saying, but he had a, the weight of the world on him being he was like yes. Lewis and Clarking some of the guitar playing that people were looking at him for. So you want to be all technical and crazy, but at the same time serve the song. So I understand a lot what you're saying, but I think he did yeah. do it the best he could. You make a good point because when there was a new Van Halen album, there was probably like three big guitar magazines. He was going to be on the cover of all three oh, yeah. every time there was a new. So he did always have to have this crazy thing to to show off. <coughs> Incidentally, I think that is the third Van Halen album, the first to feature any synths, which was, that's ah. true. That becomes such a big part of who they are as they mature as a band and as some people kind of lose them, but there's not a lick of that, no pun intended, on Van Halen 1 or Van Halen 2. So this is what, the beginning. What, what are the synth, are you, are, 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 do you know of any the particular synth songs on Fair Warning? Because to me, people like, oh my God, when I, they heard Jump and they heard the synth, that's when they go, mm-hmm. oh my God, Van Halen's using synths now, but I don't think people know. That '81, they were actually incorporating synths into their into the uh, I, their music. I can tell you the names of all of the songs, and you can tell me if this means anything to you. Uh, yeah. Mean Street, Dirty Movies, Sinners Swing, Hear About It Later, Unchained, Push Comes to Shove, So This Is Love, and Sunday Afternoon in the Park. God, Mean Street is such a great song. So This Is Love is such a great song. That, that, that's fair warning. It's a great record. I. I probably, you know, I never did. I I didn't live with that record, so maybe there's some yeah. synths on the songs I don't know. But the three I, I yeah. love, there are no synths on it unless they're buried deep into the mix somewhere. Wait, which one is so this? Which one's so this is love? So this is love. Oh, I need it. So this is love. Oh, I gotta have it. I mean, I'm not doing any justice. I'm- no, you are. You are. I, I, I kind of got the idea. The song doesn't ring a bell because obviously there's So This Is Love and Why Can't This Be Love. Right. They are on yeah. the opposite ends of the musical spectrum. So This Is Love I, feels like Mean Streets. So This Is Love feels very fair warning. It's kind of dark. Yeah. You know, it, there's it's ominous. Um, you know, it, it's like it's kind of so this is love. That's all there is. You know, I yeah. need it. You know, it's, it's kind of it, it's it's 
a beautiful wordplay in there. Um, but uh, Santa, fair warning is better than I thought it was. I'm going to have to go take another look at it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. We'll go through a couple of the bigger pop songs of the year that were released in April of 1981. And you might know this. I believe this was brand new news to me. I've definitely reached the phase of my life where I'm just relearning things over and over again <laughs> for the first time. But to tell the story of one of the biggest hit songs of 1981, and indeed of the 1980s in general, you need to go back all the way to 1974. Now, the song's a big, big hit. I actually want to say that at some point I heard by some weird metric, it actually was the single biggest song of the 80s when it comes to how long it was number one and airplay. And obviously how long something is number one has a lot to do with the competition at any given moment. But a massive, massive song that I did not know this had already been recorded by one of the songwriters all the way back in 1974, albeit in a radically, radically different style. Let me know if this, does the name Jackie DeShannon mean anything to you? Yes. Okay. This is songwriter, and at that point clearly um, signed recording artist, Jackie DeShannon's version of this big hit song four years before it was to be a big hit. She knows just what it takes to make a pro blush. She's got Greta Garbo stand side. She's got a Betty Davis side. She's got Betty Davis side. Like a barbershop raga. Like it's like a it's like a <laughs> saloon style. You can never tell me production doesn't mean everything. That yeah. song's not a hit song as is oh my god no no i mean she proved it she released bonnie it and tyler it didn't do gets a hold of it when bonnie tyler gets a hold of it kim carnes kim my, my 80s one hit wonders are, are, are juggling around here but when kim carnes gets a hold of it i wonder who produced it for kim carnes do you have that uh, information for me let me play a little bit of the uh the kim carnes yeah, yeah. hit version Good. of that and i'll look that up also, also, somebody who's in her band, and again, synths are starting to, not that synths hadn't been a major player in a, arena rock in the late 70s, in disco for that matter, but I guess some guy in Kim Carnes' band also does that. Do, 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 and there's no Betty Davis eyes as we know it without the signature synth thing that of carries course. the verses. So sure. producer is going to get a lot of credit, but whoever the synth guy also deserves uh, quite a bit as well, because that's, that's really what they hung this new version of an old song on. Boy, it's that four on the floor. A four on the floor really gets you, know, but that that drum just keeps it keeps it moving. You know yeah. what a difference! What a what a what a subtle changes, but just massive, massive. I would argue those are more than subtle changes. Yeah, no, I would too. You're right. You're right. <laughs> Forgive me, but but yeah. it's just interesting that like that song was written and done, 
And I believe mm -hmm. is Jackie DeShannon is still the only songwriter, right? There was. I think there's. I think there. I think there were two writers even back the first time. I don't think anybody oh, got that, but Yeah, they didn't add any songwriters. No, there were. Nope, I don't believe nope. any arrangements. Uh, different arrangements. So it's incredible how one could be a dud and one could be the biggest song of the '80s. It's just. It's crazy. And boy, what a satisfyingly scratchy voice oh. Kim Carnes had. I mean, it's just amazing. You feel like she's just about to, there's glass stuck in her throat and she's about to just blow it out in the next voice. It like, yeah. it's like barely hanging on, you know? And I think that's the attraction to it, you know? The producer's name, Val Gary, Val Garay. He won a Grammy for Betty Davis size, which is no shock. It was nine non-consecutive weeks at number one. It was five weeks and then Stars on 45 knocked it out, which we've discussed in a percentage. Yep. Shout out to Stars on 45. And, uh, and, and then ran for another four years after that, known for working with Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor, Kenny Rogers, Ringo Starr, Bonnie Raitt, Neil Diamond, The Motels, Mr. Big, Dolly Parton, Queensryche. Oh, he got into metal. Easy. Oh, Jeez. hell yeah. All Crazy. Real big fish. Crazy that he got into like hard rock later in his career, you know, because he was kind of doing the singer songwriter uh, yep. solo careers. And then he said he did a Mr. Big and Queensryche. So he must have been in the latter years of his career when he goes, why don't I get in this heavy metal thing? You know, I did Betty Davis eyes. Now it's time for some silent lucidity. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's funny. Music. What? Let's see. Elsewhere, um, on its way to the top or somewhere near it of the charts in April of '81. Uh, I don't. Wh what do you know about Billy Squire? Uh, I know he was a very respected rocker, and people. Yeah. Uh, he he was huge, and then he made yeah. a video wearing pink yeah. parachute pants to a song called "Rock Me Tonight," and it right. ended his career overnight, like literally overnight. Because people, he goes, you know what? I'm going to wear a pink parachute pants, Capizios, and I'm going to prance around and dance around like a Mick Jagger without being Mick Jagger, even though I've never danced or shown this side of myself before. Kind of when Kevin Rowland from Dexie's Midnight Runners decided to uh, dress up as a transgender for her solo record. People yeah. took it like, whoa, and it ended his career overnight. Right, except in this case, I don't think it was so much that I need to unleash the real, true inner, inner Billy Squire. I think it was more of a stylistic thing. I've been this guy who's hulking behind a guitar, and uh, I, I remember hearing one time on one of those VH1 "We Love the Whatever" shows that Pat Benatar had had this landmark thing where she was the first rocker to dance in a music video, and that had been such a clear division. And and I remember thinking then and now. Well, sure, to the extent that we consider Pat Benatar a rocker. Right. Know, I, and, and, and I guess Billy Squire was just a little bit more firmly entrenched in the rock world. And so mincing around, if you were not Steven Tyler or, or, or Mick Jagger or Bon Scott or one of the many people who had a license to do that, you were, you were done. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment, especially, like I said, he was deep-rooted in that guitar rock, stoner, you know, don't kill my yeah. vibe. And then he basically adapted a culture club Duran Duran aesthetic, and it didn't work for him. I'm all about evolving and changing, and, and artists have the right to do what they want to do, but people have the right to have an opinion, too, and boy, did they ever have one. And back in those days, you got to understand, there was a real demarcation between, I'm a rocker, I'm a punker, 
I'm a new wave. You know, there were, it was, you know, it wasn't so much today. Everybody listens to everything. You know, it's just one, yeah. one, the nineties kind of killed, broke down all the walls, the Lollapalooza age. I like to say when you can watch ice tea on stage with the boredoms on stage with James addiction, it just, it just ripped all down the genres of music. But back then you stayed in your lane, artists and fans, uh, especially if you were younger fans, and I think Billy Squire, just people weren't ready for that, for that radical aesthetic change. They weren't ready, obviously. Well, and they may have been right. It may have also just been incredibly cheesy and, and lame in, in the general public's defense. Now, I remembered all of that. That's what Billy Squire is to me. He's a guy who had a run and then threw it all away because he made this really embarrassing music video. Here's the thing that I was wrong about. I thought it was the stroke that had done that to him. No, 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 no. People couldn't get behind him dancing around his bedroom you know, making kissy faces in a mirror wearing pastels, but they had been perfectly fine with him singing this song right here. That song yeah. rocks, dude. There's some killer guitar in that, man. I mean, I can I see know, the man. look of disgust in your face, but lyrically, I mean, it's like the hoke. It's like the hokey pokey of hand jobs. It is when he said, uh, "What did he say? Give me a firm grip." What did he say there? Put what your right want? hand in, and I mean, it's very, very, <laughs> it's very on the nose. And then he doesn't even like try to hide it. Like, guys, I need a title. You know, it's, yeah. it's called the stroke, but but you know what? I also think he filled that he filled a need there when people were hurt and 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 mourning the loss of Led Zeppelin. He's got a very Robert Plant s sounding voice. Yeah. And uh, when it, when John Bonham passed away in eighty, I believe it was was something out of eighty. Um, and so there were the understanding was there was going to be no uh, zero new Led Zeppelin music. I think Billy Squire filled that void by himself. Not that's a that might be a stretch, but he had such a Robert Plant s voice that he certainly was thrown into that genre of hard rock. We're gonna we're gonna let you hang with the Harold Smiths, the uh, you know the Boston's, the, the Led Zeppelins. You just stay over here, okay? Yeah. Don't worry about the pastels and stuff that are coming. Uh, and, and I think you know I think that's why the the backlash was so swift and so sudden when he came out prancing about because Rock Me Tonight's a good song. The uh, the little guitar thing he's doing in the verse there. I mean, what is that from? That that is, am I crazy? That's bam, like a bam, particular. Bam, 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 bam. That's is that a Led Zeppelin song? It's is that a from Led Zeppelin? Yeah, Floyd yes. song. Like it's not not esque. That is actually cribbed. I think from. I can't put my finger on the song. Somebody it's definitely this. inspired by. I don't think oh, yeah. there's songwriting credits on the stroke oh, no, to no, whoever no, that's sure from. Right. But I yeah. think that's another tip of the cap to kind of what I was saying about, you know, the Led Zeppelin sort of influence in Billy Squire, you know, yeah. and once you once you start dancing in that lane back then, man, you couldn't start dancing in the other lanes, literally and figuratively. Oh. Hell no. Uh, scale of one to ten. How excited are you about the tubes? It's not high. And I'm yeah, uh, same here. I'm a, I, I, I respect B.U.A. Bill a lot. I. Mm -hmm. Respect their journey. The tubes were considered a punk rock band when they started in San Francisco in 77, yeah. 78. And an art rock band. 
an they're art very, rock, a, punk a very rock. Very high concept band. Right. A high, but avant-garde, punk rock, like those and those, super cool. And they went from white punks on dope to she's a beauty in yeah. about a four-year, five-year period. I mean, they she's did. a beauty is just a classic rock pop song to white punks on dope, which is like a hardcore. I mean, they were punk rock. They started out, you know, so she's interesting. Is, yeah. Interesting evolution towards that band, you know, a pretty quick one. She's a beauty. I, I file under like, it's a genre, a subgenre of music that I call Baywatch music. It's like Pretty beautiful. The opening credits of Baywatch. Right. You could, absolutely. You could throw like honeymoon suite in there. You can, yeah. you can throw in what became the tubes in there. Uh, you, you're, you're, there was definitely that Baywatch background, slow motion jog on the beach music. And they definitely went that. They went from white punks and dope to remember talk to you later. That's, I don't that's what came see- out. Yeah. That's what oh, came that was- out in April of, of 81. So supposedly what happened is the tubes are farting around doing their art rock thing. Um, you know, being very precious and well received by about 14 people. And then they lose their record deal. And I think they were affiliated. I think Todd Rundgren had worked with them. I mean, serious credibility. And then they just didn't have a record deal. And I think somebody said, well, this label will sign you if you guys will do kind of crappy pop music. And supposedly the deal was a three album deal for the label a one album one album one album deal for the band which is to say if any one of these albums doesn't sell you will be dropped right so there was pressure on the tubes every time around there was never a safe space to say well now that we've established ourselves and sold some units maybe we can try to blend the old credible stuff with this it was like no here's this song it's called she's a beauty get working guys did they write that song? Talk, talk did to you they later? write "Talk to You Later"? I don't know okay, if Fee Waybill, Fee Waybill, forgive me, is the singer, lead singer, is crazy talented. Yeah. And, All right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna have to listen to it while I. Now you've done it. Now we have to listen to the tubes. All right. Let's. See. Uh, you brought me into this. You went down. <laughs> you brought. You asked me about the tubes. You're gonna get a long answer. Because <laughs> the it's funny the album cover still looks like more of an art rock Gary Newman kind of thing. But what is it spray are, paint? Um, like is it spray paint logo? Like what is I, I can't remember what it what that album. Yeah, it's just like thing. it's just like a PVC pipe connector thing that makes a, a tape. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, I remember that. Um and this and and the it actually is a fairly high concept album. I forget what the the concept is. Um, it's called the Completion Backward Principle, but the single is just straight ahead pop, a la 1981. People will recall. might be a little better than she's a beauty that's a good song man i mean it's yeah. weird there, there there was a bay area early 80s i'm gonna throw Huey Lewis the news in there yep. with uh s- some of the stuff they were doing like driving greg kin force i mean the bay area in the early 80s had a little bit of a hold on that super melodic pop rock song that kind of maybe had some foundation in punk rock. It's kind of like America's answer to post-punk, if you will. 
You know, they were still Power great pop. driving rock and roll songs. Tom Petty was doing it down in Jacksonville. These great little three chord rock and roll classic nuggets. And the tubes had a couple of them. Greg Kinn did. Huey Lewis even did before he broke huge with uh, sports. Um, so it's an interesting time. The p- pretenders were kind of doing that. You know what I mean? That that just rock and roll, four on the floor, great, great classic music. They even became more, even as time went by, became more revered and appreciated. The song is credited to the tubes primarily. The other people receiving song writing credit, David Foster, who I believe you've mentioned a few times. I'm still not totally clear on is this guy's the guy who did who produced people who wanted to sell out and make soundtrack songs, right? David Foster is a co-writer on Talk to You Later. He's a co-writer on four songs on the album. It's all making sense to me now. Okay, it is okay, all break, break, break it down. Break it down. Well, David Foster, one of the premier songwriter producing geniuses of our generation. He did, he's on Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, uh, Christina Aguilera. He's the guy that when Diane Warren writes one of these sweeping ballads that's, you know, delivered by Celine Dion, whoever it is, he's the guy that does the music behind it all. He'll yeah. co-write, you know, he'll, he'll either co-write, produce, his stamp is on everything. He's the guy that ushered in the Peter Cetera era of Chicago. That's when he kind of started making his bones. So he was doing these early 80s sort of new wave, talk to you later type things. That you're wondering why. I, I, I looked at you during that part when they were like, she won't miss you when she's gone. Remember the part right there? And I go, that's really good. Well, that's David Foster right there doing this stack harmonies of a beautiful musical change that makes the song so memorable. And he went on to be arguably the most successful American producer of all time. I mean, you can just check his Wikipedia. It's it's phenomenal. And I was wondering why Fee Waybill knows Richard Marks. They're like best friends for some reason. Hmm. Richard Marks and Fee Waybill. David Foster would be the connection between all of that. You're solving, you're solving my own personal puzzles right now. Yeah. Uh, even though nobody, nobody else cares, totally, I No, do. no, 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 no. There's a lot of healing going on all over the place. Right now, I can tell. <laughs> also, the third, so the band, The Tubes, they had joint credit and then David Foster and then uh, featured, I think, a bunch of plays on the album, Steve Lukather. He's uh, Toto, right? From Toto, yup. And he also was, he was also a hired gun, too. He played guitar yeah. on a lot of, Michael Jackson um, mm-hmm. wrote a lot of great songs and, and really... A guy, guitar players always say he's one of my favorite guitar players, but yeah. underrated in terms of the mass public. You know, Steve Lukather mm. is up there in the top 10 of all time. Yeah, I one time for some reason was talking about him with Slash, and I think I mistakenly said that he was from Foreigner. And I clearly lost some esteem in Slash's mind for not having <laughs> an easy working knowledge of Steve Lukather. So... Again, we tend to think that these artists build these walls and the, the the serious hardcore rock guys, you know, turn down their nose at the totos of the world. And clearly Steve Lukather is a dude in Slash's estimation. Oh, yeah. No. And also, he's also a guy that's hung around and party with all these guys. He's a super friendly guy. He lives out here in the Valley. I know his son pretty well, too. He's a really, really uh, amazing player as well. So, uh, no, he's, he's a great guy, wonderful player, and he's just had incredible success. You know, he's written more songs outside of Toto that were hit songs uh, for other people, too. So he's yeah. uh, he's quite the player. 
Correct me if I'm wrong. Toto is sort of to session musicians as uh, well, and so is Mr. Big. I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Mister. What garbage are to producers? So these people who had long-standing they were well established within the industry and managed to pull their talents and maybe dumb it down a little bit and have a bunch of hits on their own. But the the guys in Toto were all doing very well for themselves behind the scenes before they made like a session, a session man super group in the same way that garbage made a producer super group in the nineties. I would say that's a, a wonderful metaphor. Um, and there's been a lot of people going through the Toto swinging door, if you will, you know, there's been a couple lead singers, uh, a couple of different drummers. One, one has passed, unfortunately. There was a couple of brothers in the band. So they've all done things. They've produced individually outside the realm of Toto. And when they want to get back together and go tour the world internationally, I mean, Toto plays arenas everywhere but America. You know, uh, they're, they're just highly respected everywhere, except, uh, I mean, they are here as well. Don't get me yeah. wrong. I mean, right. you know, Africa, Weezer, you know, come on. But uh, people... People go to a lot of concerts outside of America, don't they? Because it seems like every band that's ever been big here is still big somewhere else. And all the bands that are currently big here. Like, how many how many arenas are there in Japan? In Japan? Because uh, everybody's big in Japan, you know? Right, right. I think what's wonderful about audiences outside the United States is they never say, oh, you're not cool anymore. I'm not listening yeah. to you. They... That they always will embrace you as long as you service them. I mean, come see them every once, every two or three years, and, and and you will always have that fan base. Where America's a little bit more fickle, you know. The guy, I'm over you. I'm done with it. I've already, you know, you, you know what I mean. So yeah. I think other audiences outside the United States are looking to build a lifetime relationship with that band, and American audiences, for whatever reasons, aren't as willing to do that with some bands. You got to work a lot harder. If if you're not consistently putting out relevant hit records. American audiences will leave you where it's just the opposite all over the world. Yeah, that is the impression that I'm getting. Uh, I would say out of all of the major genres of music that cross over into the pop sphere, I have the least affection personally for things of the funk variety. I don't think I've, I don't know that there's ever been a funk band that ever really spoke to me personally. I left out um, as I said I had to cut something. Parliament had another new record. It's really really good. People love it. Every hip hop album you've ever owned has sampled it liberally. It's a bunch more stuff that sounds like Parliament, which is a really good groove on a loop, but somebody who was popping through to the mainstream in a major way is Rick James who hit his absolute zenith in April of 1981 with the album Street Songs, which is the album from which Super Freak was released and the immortal Give It To Me Baby. And I don't know how much those songs, I mean, you know, they're still on the radio out here in LA. They don't mean a whole lot to me. I thought it would actually be more fun to revisit the, the ballad, which was a minor hit in its own right. I think this is a duet with Satina Marie, somebody... I'm speaking of uh, of the seven minute long on the album Fire and Desire. Yeah, yeah. This is some it's serious, a great album. This is some serious baby making music right here. Love and sensitivity. Remember when I used to love them and leave them. That's what I used to do. And abuse them 
Rick James was crazy, crazy talented. Crazy talented. Yeah. That reminds me like an OJ's, a mid-70s, Delphonics, Chillites, yeah. stylistics type track. And then he coupled that with Super Freak and Give It To Me Baby. Some of the horniest R&B punk rock you could ever, ever imagine. And an interesting fact about Rick James is he was in a band. He was Canadian. He lived in Buffalo. He went AWOL in the Army, ran up to Canada, and was in a band with uh, Neil Young called the Minor Birds. Believe it or not, they were called the Minor Birds. They were kind of like uh, the Birds, if you will. Uh, uh, a they dressed like in sort of the cowboy, you know, uh, aesthetic that was kind of the thing in the late '60s. Stephen Stills, Neil 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 Young look, who became that. But they were the Minor Birds. And they got a little bit of a record deal. Um, and there's a really interesting connection between Rick James and uh, Neil Young, besides the fact they were just in the band. And Neil Young always would, would extol the virtues of Rick James as a player, as a songwriter, and as a singer. And you can hear it right there. The soul in that man's voice is how deep he, amazing. He gave Eddie Murphy a hit. Come on. He gifted Eddie Murphy <laughs> a hit in the craziest way. And do and you know what? Did, did, did Rick James have a hit after Party All the Time? Maybe he should have kept that one for himself. You know, that, that's well said because I, I think it took a, a major nosedive after that. Uh, the smoking of the, the crack 24 yeah. hours probably did not do a lot for the voice right. and the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 yeah. the productivity. But, um, yeah, I think that was his last hit. I mean, that's just Rick James. You know what I mean? And you could take the verse. You know, I'll sing the chorus with you and we'll have a number one song. Yeah, Amazing. yeah. If he had it to do all over again, maybe A, don't give that song to Eddie Murphy. B, lay off the crack. Yeah, it's 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 wise. And the latter is pretty a wise choice for most life decisions. <laughs> I have found. So uh, yeah, sneakily, and I guess not so sneakily, coming to the R and B new releases in 1981 has been a highlight for me every time. Shaka Khan is back with her her third album, I guess, in April of 1981. I'm sure you will remember this is, relatively speaking, a, a minor hit, but major in my heart. You tell me you don't like funk. I guess that's pretty funky, huh? Yeah, you tell me you, you just you just you love Fire and Desire. You love this Chaka Khan, sort of deep deep cut. And you yeah. tell me you don't like funk. I mean, I give it I to me, baby. Yeah, that is. Pre- I don't. I could do without. I could do without. Give it to me, baby. I could do without Brick Shit House. Personally, I mean, I, right, you know. right. Well, what about but what about like the Gap Band? You like you know? Did you like Party Train or you dropped the bomb on me? Oh my God, no! No, all that ever reminds me of is one time. I don't know if if the Poconos have a national um, reputation. The Poconos are a place in the New Jersey, New York tri-state area where it's a driving vacation that you can go on. So it tends to be more of a humble vacation. When I was a kid, there were these constant ads on TV that you should go there for a romantic getaway and you'd get like a a heart-shaped bathtub and they would be dropping <laughs> splits of champagne and strawberries at your room every night you could literally have a big champagne glass bubble bath that you could hoist yourself <laughs> in somehow 
and my girlfriend and I at the time thought it would be funny to go there ironically. And we ended up feeling like the biggest, the biggest pieces of shit because every night we were sat down for meals with people who were really there for like their honeymoon. And, and right. it's like, isn't this place wonderful? Isn't this great? And we're like, God, we are awful uppity yeah. pieces of, of shit. Mm -hmm. And every yeah. night the concert was this one guy with a keyboard. I remember he chewed gum when he wasn't singing and he was just completely, <laughs> completely bored going you dropped the bump on me baby and you could just see oh him like God. going through his grocery list in his mind <laughs> it's a place to go to die as a musician yeah. right oh yeah absolutely well this is the cat skills oh, this is like after it was the borscht belt of right. jewish comedy it reinvented as this romantic getaway for people within a 60 mile radius Oh, well, look, I, look, that's a bit of a depressing recall there. So I can yeah. understand maybe having that, uh, that, that sort of feeling towards that genre. But I would love to see you get find your way past that and just enjoy <laughs> the uh, wonderful genre of funk again, man. It's just, it, you know, the thing about that and disco, we've talked about disco. I know you like disco. You've, love you've, disco. You've, you've, and so it's just a it's about 10 miles down the road to Funkville. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's a very much a simpatico between the two genres. So I'm surprised that you just do an umbrella sweep of funk. Like, I don't like funk. Well, I guess you it's know? the things that I think of as typically funk is, is, is fairly narrow. Because you're right. That Chaka Khan song, you could sing You Drop the Bomb on Me over that piece of music. So I guess it's more like where people tended to take funk in a, in a, in a pop manner more often than not didn't land with me but like yeah shaka khan is great i'm pretty sure at that point already um whitney houston is doing backup vocals like a 10 year old whitney houston is singing backup Incredible. vocals because I, I love the the fun fact whitney had a huge hit with i'm every woman from the bodyguard soundtrack that's a shaka khan song to the best of my knowledge whitney had sang backup vocals on the hit version from shaka khan as a teenager come on i don't even know that was was Shaka Khan on Arista? Does it say? Because okay. why is the where did she get to Shaka Khan? Because obviously Clive Davis. I think she, it's, uh, her, it's, it's like her older like aunt or something. Oh, the uh, the Cicely Tyson or um. I think or, there's another or, one who's in music though. Wow, that's incredible. How is that not more well known? I mean, I introduced that song all the time on my show on the 120 in 90s on yeah. nine, and that would be a factoid. I would have been the love to. Uh, Unleashed upon the world. It's entirely possible I made it up. She is related. I forgot to uh, to to Dionne Warwick. Yes, that's 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 the uh, yeah, that's her cousin. Sissy Sissy Houston. Sissy is Houston. The Sissy gospel singer. She's first cousins with Dion and Dee Dee Warwick. Her godmother was Darlene Love, and her honorary aunt was Aretha Franklin, who she met when she was eight or nine, and her mother took her to. A recording studio performing. Teacher had to sing. She was exposed. She was she was part of that world then. Like you know, it's not now yeah. that you see her background. It's not that much of a stretch for her to have sung background on a shock yeah. uh, shocker contract. In 1977, aged 14, Whitney Houston was a backup singer for the Michael Zager band single Life's a Party. Now, Michael Zager band, that rings a bell. That might be um, Let's All Chant. Your body, my body, everybody yeah. move your body, yeah. right? Yeah. And then nice. in 78, at the age of 15, 
Whitney Houston sang backup vocals for Lou Rawls and Shaka Khan. So if it's got it's that incredible. much, in, if it's that got that much in the Wikipedia, I'm willing to bet that I that I am right about that. That yeah, she sang backup vocals on the original version of "I'm Every Woman." That is the the coolest story ever. I love that. I love and that. And I always thought it was kind of a cheap single for her. We were talking about this earlier. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. you can just get a real. I, I was thinking about that this weekend when, um, you know, I, I I I like Poison. I don't love Poison, but I had totally forgotten about their version of "Your Mama Don't Dance." And not only is that not a great version of not a great song to begin with, to me it was very shamelessly them covering Motley Crue's idea of covering Smokin' in the Boys' Room. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, it, but that, mm -hmm. that, that song, I believe, was that off Poison's second record? Open Up and Say Ah, yeah. Yeah, it was. Okay. Because um, when you think after Every Rose and um, Fallen Angel, uh, Nothing But a Good Time, Yep, and Fallen Angel. That, they wrote they wrote hits for that album, but then they also yeah, did no, they did, they did, they did, right. But but then it's always nice again to have you know, like you said, they just went for the Motley Crue model. By the way, Motley the Motley Crue model, I think you know, uh, Theater of Pain, that record, it's it's not that strong a record, so they needed terrible. another cover on there. You know, oh, it's it's terrible without Home Sweet Home. They might have been. They might if they hadn't thought Done. of doing the cover, and if they hadn't, right. and if Tommy Lee hadn't gone. Dun, 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 doo, 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 that might have been the end of Motley Crue. Theater of Pain is a cannot very agree bad with album. you more. Cannot agree with you more because you know Tommy took some piano lessons, figured out a little riff. Because uh, that's also right when uh, Vince had his thing when, when with Razzle and the the drunk driving thing. That's right. So they were that was headed for an implosion at the home sweet home. Uh, save that record, you know. Uh, you're right. That might have been curtains for Motley Crue. They explicitly point out point that out in the, at least the movie version of The Dirt, where one of the little skirmishes in the band is Vince complaining to the manager guy that this album sucks, and I'm the guy that's going to have to go out there across America and sell it to people like it doesn't suck. That's that's right. literally a part of a scene in the movie. And speaking of people ripping people off, I'd wanted to mention with Unchained. That's the second song we've listened to from 1981, the other one being the Michael Shanker group that I can sing round and round by Rat to. Oh, God, good call. Yeah. Good call. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about the uh, the guitar line right now. You're right. You're totally right. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I think that could be true with a lot of songs, though. You know what I mean? I mean, once you find a formula, bands are going to use that formula. Yeah. Now, you change the melody enough, it's fine. But chord, you know, it's interesting. You can't trademark a chord progression. Otherwise, yep. there'd be five songs, you know? That's right. Uh, so it's interesting that, that you're, you're correct. And once some, someone latches on to something, like they did in the early 80s with the great Kin, the tube songs, we got this, you know, chung, 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 chugging beat. Let's let's all let's follow that chord progression. And so you kind of said earlier today we were talking about before we jumped on, you know, was it DCG? You know what I mean? I mean, how many how many songs have been written in a DCG chord progression? You could sing a hundred and fifty songs off the top of your head. So once you find that magic, that chord progression, people are gonna jump on it. That's interesting. You know, in a lot of ways, this is a more esoteric point, but copyright law is necessary and I support it. But it really, really inhibits music. You know, like take I'll take a really classic example, like the Homer, you know, the Odyssey and the Iliad. 
everybody knows that there was no Homer and somebody made up the story and then somebody embellished it and somebody embellished it and the good embellishment stayed and the bad embellishments went and next thing you know you had this rock it's like a stand-up comic working on their hour they come yeah. out with this stuff and some stuff goes you, you tighten this thing up this part gets a little bit better you cut that thing you move this thing around and all of a sudden wow this thing is really hard to mess with well when you live in a world where I'm just personally writing a couple of songs right now where I know I've just got one or two things that I cribbed from just insane places that, and, and sure it's like, well, do I really need to throw, you know, I'm not going to make any money, but you know what I mean? If, if I were a real musician, I would probably throw that one back. But the way a lot of the great traditional songs were made is, you know, I even think about a guy like Wyclef Jean, who was like, screw it. I'll just pay everybody. He builds songs by pieces of songs on top of other pieces of songs. That is in a non hyper capital kind of world, the way music is supposed to grow and evolve by liberally openly building your stuff on other people's stuff. And I thank God, honestly, if music somehow just got invented yesterday or recording music, somebody probably would be able to copyright GCD. And what a loss that would be. Boy, boy, that, that's so well said. And, and history has absolutely proven what you've said because the Beatles have said, I took this from Chuck Berry, uh, Brian Wilson. I, I that Brian Wilson had, they had include Chuck Berry on I, I, whatever Serpent USA because it's the same riff. You know, they had to literally include him because, you know, uh, so I, I think you're right, man. I mean, luckily there isn't people trademarking chord progressions. I'm glad it never happened because there, there would be five songs in the world, you know? Yeah. There's only 12 notes. Yeah. You know, it's just how you wrap them is what makes it special. Um, but I also say this to people thinking you can just take this and put it together. Go ahead. Go try and sample some songs and make a hit song. It's still hard. You know, with all the stuff out there that's available to you, you can sample this, put this here, put this drum beat here. This bass play, this bass line has worked. It's still difficult because magic is magic. It's still, you know, it's still abstract. Yep. It's not a science to it yet. So we are kind of, we, somehow we played a Shaka Khan song and started talking about <laughs> hair metal again. So let's just own <laughs> Let's just own what this is. So I, I'm fascinated by the, as we know in historical retrospect, the inevitable coming of hair metal and what it was and was not as of where we stand in spring of 1981. I find the band Whitesnake very fascinating because I know something about Whitesnake that many people don't know, which is not only had they been kicking around for a while by the time they found success, when they did find success, they were able to take a couple of their old songs and just hair metal them up just a little bit more and make the, the signature hair metal songs out of songs that were not really hair metal and were also not really hits. They were like a middle of the bill kind of kind of band. And and that's where we find uh, Whitesnake in 1981. They still got the guy in the band who has two or three keyboard stacks. <laughs> They still got the chubby guy with the curly receding hair that's barely down to his uh, yep. to to his neck on on guitar. It's so interesting what they are and what they are not when they release the. Well, they've they've already got their their brand down in terms of um, uh, titles. The album is called "Come and Get It," so they had that bit figured out. Yeah. And the single off of that is called Don't Break My Heart Again, and it sounds like this. 
Sounds like the best of like Frank Stallone. You know what I mean? It was that early eighties <laughs> pumping. Do you, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like that, that kind of like hard rock thing. And also David Coverdale is coming from the world of deep purple. So it's super keyboard heavy. It's mm-hmm. trying to come out of the seventies classic rock, but trying to have a little bit of that early eighties rock feel. It's trying to be everything and nothing at once. And it's not really hitting. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm just going to say it again. It's it's arcade music. It's just meant to be in a, a, a dark room. In my town, it was called The Great Escape, where there were some mysterious stains on the floor you didn't want to know anything about, and a faint whiff of what, in retrospect, you can now realize was marijuana, and it was asteroids, and it was a couple of Dayglo posters, and it was it was incredible. And that song is not very good, but it was the perfect soundtrack to that milieu boy dude ours was called games plus same kind of vibe same kind of vibe but a bunch of pool tables and stuff you know the dark rooms pinball machines and play that exact same music all day long and we loved it and we liked it we um, loved it but i i uh it, it, it's it's i i I'm, I'm losing my mind who produced white snakes uh gigantic record was it uh do you know? Was it Ted Templeman? I, I no, can't remember. No, 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 no. I think we had this conversation. Because <laughs> we, we talk about Whitesnake a lot. I wanna, <laughs> I'm going to say I'm going to say that I recall that it was that Tom Lord Elge guy. Oh, Algae. Uh, there's Chris Lord Algae and there's Tom Lord Algae. Oh, one okay, is the okay. uh, one's a producer. One's the mixer. By the way, uh, and both. No, extremely. Um, let me see this. The song "Here I Go Again." is oh no 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 see i'm looking at the original version which is going to come out in 1982 that's produced by martin birch but that's not what we are looking for hold on i'll find out this is truly something worth waiting for hold on no it is to me because i, I want to know i'm i i'm shocked i don't have that just at the tip of my tongue knowledge you know right. well i know people at home are going as I do with so many other bands of the of the era, um, yeah, I could tell you who produced all kinds of uh, John Kolodner, Kolodner guy. There, I know he was the Aerosmith guy. He's the guy who convinced David Coverdale to re-record "Here I Go Again." Interesting fact on "Here I Go Again." The original version has "Like a hobo, I was born to walk mm-hmm. alone." But in the the one we all know, like a drifter, I was born to walk alone. Yeah, yeah. Now I've heard that he that David Coverdale, which is not what I would have guessed about him, has an excellent sense of humor about himself, and I think he has owned the fact that he knows that his entire career hinges on the fact that somebody convinced him to change hobo to drifter. Yes, I walked. I I met him at a sunglass store on Sunset, right across the street from the Mondrian. Nice and. He came up to me, you know, and I was kind of in my little peak celebrity and I was all fanning him out, acting like I didn't really see him, but totally seeing him. He came up to me. He was the nicest guy in the world. Big smile, very gregarious, very complimentary and just a very lovely guy. And a guy that's like that has a sense of humor about himself. You can tell. So that's my little Coverdale reaction. And he's really good friends with Glenn Hughes, who was in Deep Purple with him at the time, another <laughs> incredible vocalist. And he's got a great sense of humor about himself. So... Yeah, you know, birds of a feather type thing. 
Mike Stone was the producer of the self-titled 1987 landmark Whitesnake album. Mike who? Mike Stone. And did he ever do anything else again? I mean, I can't believe it's not one of the, you know, the Ted Templemans, Mont Langs of the world, the, you know, Mike Clinks. I mean, it's such a gigantic record. And I've never heard Mike Stone's name being mentioned in the pantheon of incredible uh, heavy metal hard rock producers. Mike Stone began his career as an assistant recording engineer at Abbey Road Studios. While still a teenager, he worked on some of the Beatles sessions. He later became... Uh, began a relationship with Roy Thomas Baker, the Queen guy, and I I think he engineered the vocals on Bohemian Rhapsody. Jesus Christ. Any, anything big? Stone's work productivity in later years was limited by an alcohol problem, and he died from complications. As a result, he did he's, his first... Uh, he is credited as a tape jockey, which is, I think, the assistant to the engineer's assistant on a Genesis album from 1971. And uh, he did Rats Reach for the Sky after White Snake. He had done an Asia album before White Snake. I mean, he 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 did a lot of a lot of Asia stuff, and clearly engineered a lot of Queen stuff. So he's that guy. Yeah, he got, he's got, like, look, he gets, he gets those big sounds, you know? So he, yep. he, uh, he learned on the, uh, at the feet of giants. So, uh, right. God bless Mike Stone. So White Snake are going to transition from being an arcade rock band to being a proper hair metal band. Meanwhile, and this is something I've never been able to wrap my head around, Jefferson Starship transition from being the don't eat the brown acid band to being one of the prototypical examples of arcade rock and i mean that's just simply grace slick is asleep at the wheel and somebody else is writing the music and just decides we're going to take this name that people know and make it something that it never ever was right boy but that band has had the craziest evolution of maybe any there's kind of like six different eras of jefferson airplane Mm -hmm. until whatever we have today i think there's a starship out i think there's a jefferson starship out there's a couple different versions of things still traveling and and it's not even like original members of you know starship i mean we're we're I mean, obviously, there's, there's, I mean, it's just, it's incredible. And Grace Slick isn't one of those people performing anymore. She doesn't perform. Right. Um, but I know Mickey Thomas. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, is Mickey Thomas part of this 81 collection of Jefferson Starship? Let or is me... Mickey Balin still in? Okay, I'll find out the answer to that while I play you this clip from, uh, everybody knows this song, I think. That's Mickey Thomas. You don't even have to look. I know that for sure. A perfectly acceptable example of the genre. I just don't understand how Jefferson Starship got there. Uh, I I totally agree. But when you think of major key figures being replaced, with the exception of Grace Slick, you can kind of understand. They were... um, Who was the guitar player then? Craig Chuckico? Chuckico? I can never pronounce his name. Um, So, you know, when when you have a turnover of players and musicians, um, a new lead singer, 
fresh blood. I, I can see how that kind of can evolve a little bit. It's straight. How they got to there doesn't mystify me is how they got five years later to they, we built this city on rock and roll. That that's, that's a little bit of a, 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 a higher mountain to climb. Oh, wow. No, see, I, that seems perfectly natural to me. That's where if you were going to still try to make a living in, in the big smoke in 1985, having yeah, been, no, having right. been a six right. or something like that, that's, exactly where you're where you're going to be yeah you're right well white done. rabbit white white rabbit in 67 to find your way back in 81 that's a big hill to climb yeah you're right you're not that far away from uh from uh you know we built this city you're yeah. correct and sarah craig yeah and that's the song that's the um the opening credits of wet hot american summer which is maybe my favorite movie of all time because it just so perfectly captures that very very specific moment in cheesy rock god does it ever that movie's right on the nose i'm surprised that movie's not bigger i mean it's big for those who know yeah but for the cat for the cast of characters in that movie and the soundtrack and the and the overall feel of that movie it should have been bigger but that's, I'm, a, that's I'm obsessed with, half those people are from the TV, the mtv show the state and i i I, mm-hmm. prof- I professionally stalk the members of I, I had two of them on my show in the last like year i'm i'm i make my i force my kid to watch it we're we're very big fans over here no you 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 your 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 comedy your your dna your essence it's very much they're so smart and whip smart and understated i mean michael ian black is just such a genius i watch his cameos just because i've got a lot of time on my hands but his cameos are hilarious oh wow hilarious he yeah, was great. I mean, he's he, just such he, a my, my my kid really did get into it, and he was on this show, and I'm doing this show in my kid's room, and he he gave my my son a personal oh yeah a Barry oh, Olivon. It's so terrific, <laughs> terrific. Yes, you were right. That Craig Chiquico, the immortal Craig Chiquico, uh, and Paul Kantner and Mickey Thomas are all the lead personnel on that particular iteration of starship i guess grace jones had come back out of the wilderness at the very last moment to add some vocals to a couple of songs but it's basically she's not of, in the band of course you met grace slick i know that grace yes. jace jones yeah, yeah, but, but paul Kent, paul kentner part of the original okay uh lineup so you still got a lot of uh, you still got some psychedelics hanging around then you know <laughs> um but I'm not sure how long Cantner lasted into the we built the city years, but that's for the that's for trivia professionals only. Yep, yep, yep. Moving on to the well, I guess you would have to say the the punk world and the new releases of that month. Public Image Limited are on, I think, their third album. And I think this is where John Lydon's music almost sort of again i know it's sacrilege to criticize anything david bowie ever did but at a certain point it seemed to me like david bowie was almost just trying to do things he hadn't done before even if he was so outside of his sweet spot that it was hard for him to make truly good music became more important to make something original maybe than to make something that was truly great um Whatever you might think of Public Image Limited, uh, the album Flowers of Romance, what does that mean to you? Uh, it means very, very uh, little, yeah. ironically, that I named my son Lydon. Yeah. When Johnny Rotten means a lot to me, the yeah. Sex Pistols. And you and I have discussed this. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Pistols gave me the impetus, the, the belief that I could get on stage and just 
Without a, if you have the balls to get on stage, you get on stage. So that they really uh, have a huge influence on me. Public image, which is a little more too dissonant for me. You know, I mean, and to to, to John Lydon's credit, he was trying to do something different. Yep. I mean, literally, he he wrote the book on punk rock three years earlier, and he was already doing something way, way far removed from that with public image, and that was his thing. Public image was a corporation. It was all for one, one for all. It was sort of like a. Uh, uh, I, they they split everything evenly. You know, it was really important to him to have this sort of uh, this 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 corp. It was a corporation almost that made music, as opposed to being a band that was a corporation. I'm I'm, I'm confusing myself, but the the way that nothing is uh, conventional in the songwriting was something I admire. But Public Image was also something I couldn't get behind. Because yep. I'm a conventionalist when it comes to music. I like my hits. I like, don't bore us, get to the chorus. I like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge out. You know? Yeah. So this is an incredible moment of, of of the punk rock world of the late 70s splitting in half. And he's he's one half of it. So here's the, the title track, I think, is the single off of Flowers of Romance. believe there was a didgeridoo in there not a lot of melody to hang your hat on in that one you know what i'm saying and i think that was by design yeah i think sometimes yep john Lydon was in a I mean, like was that a freestyle melody or was he like this is the melody i have in my head you know, it's almost like avant-garde i think mm -hmm. i heard some horns in there too being blown yeah um and i think that was the point of that it was yeah. almost unlistenable you know because he wanted to get so far away from where he was that he could get back to making music again if that makes any sense he had to destroy the image yeah. the public image if you will to get back to making music but some of the public image records later i love i absolutely love Right. And so what's interesting to me about this is that that same month that that comes out, and I, I've said the, the point so many times, I don't need to repeat it. Sex Pistols, all those bands were like, it's been done once, don't ever do it again. He goes off and does Public Image Limited. But there's other people, and, and he believes that's the spirit of punk rock. And then there's this other people who believe the spirit of punk rock is sounding exactly like that thing. Right. In 1981 and in 1991 and in 2001 and I got some neighbors and based on the t-shirts that they're wearing, there's still five or ten bands doing it in 2021. And in this same month, the Exploited arrive on the scene and the title track of their album is Punk's Not Dead. And this becomes a rallying cry for not only their listeners, but for a whole entire scene. And when they say Punk's Not Dead, they mean that exact kind of punk. <laughs> That's right. Will not be dying on our watch. And here, here's, here's that song. And I believe Waddy when he says that. I mean, I believe he means it, and I know he means it because about five years ago, he had a heart attack on stage singing in Spain. 
The man is, uh, he's, a, he's a machine. So you are so right about that. People going, I'm staying here. We found a sound. We found a lane. Uh, John Lydon, you can go play with Gang of Four and the rest of them over there and make dissonant music that's kind of listenable, not really. And Killing Joke kind of went down that road. So it really split in half, punk rock. It's a really good uh, assessment, uh, Tully, you made. You're right about that. And the others went, you know what? We're sticking with that three chord and the truth. And that's what we're going to do. Took a while to like Green Day and Offspring made it really commercial. And once it stayed there in the top 10, it's never left. You know, there's always a band willing to uh, fly that flag. And that's exactly right. I, I've i never spent a lot of time with the music of The Cure, which is really, really odd because I listen religiously to so many bands that are, you know, if you listen to The Smiths on Spotify, they're going to insist that you must love The Cure. And I just, something, I like it. I can't quite really sink my sink my teeth into it something that i kind of sort of knew but i only really proved for myself in doing research for this episode is that they really had been around for a while before they figured out the cure thing i have this uh, album i forget what it's called comes out in it is their third album um faith is the name of the album mm-hmm it's interesting, and we've talked about this a few times. Yeah. The Cure is another one of the bands that was demographically huge here in Southern California because of K-Rock. Yeah. So The Cure might not have hit big maybe in Jersey, Florida, you know, but but The Cure in Southern California, as soon as Boys Don't Cry came out, 81, yeah. 82, whenever it came out, they were never not on my radio dial, it seems. You know, it took a while for the rest of the world to catch up, you know, Um so I, I, it's, it's always funny to me when you and I come into this impasse and we do every show yeah. when I'm like, no, the, you know, uh, Span LA was huge and, you know, or, or whatever it is, there's always a band. Um, and it just shows you what a tastemaker that, uh, that K-Rock was uh, back then. K-R-R, they were actually called K-R-R-Q. Um, but I'm surprised you don't pray at the altar of the cure. It yeah. just seems to be right in your aesthetic. I know. Uh, music you respect. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't know. I got the greatest. I'm surprised. I listen to a couple songs. I don't know. Caterpillar's cute. You know, I, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. But no okay, deep so, dives. So I've tried. I've tried. I kiss me, kiss me, kiss me. Supposed to be the album, and yeah, that's nice. I, I don't know. Doesn't just doesn't really stick to my ribs. So yeah, boys don't cry. Obviously, I'm familiar with. Obviously, that's a thing. I'm saying that I think that may have been their the the early quote unquote early cure may have been their fourth album, because yeah. Okay, you tell me if this is a KROQ song. It's called Primary. I can tell from your goth skanking that this is a song you're familiar with. Oh, oh, bro. The, the innocence <laughs> of sleeping children. I mean, that was such a huge KROQ, gigantic hit. And you know what really surprises me every time I visit The Cure? And when I saw them live, they are such a bass-driven band. Mm-hmm. All of their stuff is... I mean, it's all 
bass. It's just a driving, driving bass with these little, you know, chord licky poos that go up and down. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, Boys Don't Cry, Primary, um, Pictures of You. It's very, very bass driven. And, and it's coming out of that post-punk thing we talked about where the gang of fours of the world, the Joy Divisions were also very bass uh, driven as well. Yeah. yeah so I, it's, it's not surprising that they come from that era, but it just, uh, it's, it's, it's unique to that, that very, uh, that era of bands. Sure. And they, and, the, and there's other ones, you know, Bella Lugosi's dead. Like, where is that? Oh, with God, yeah. Right, right, right. That having said Robert Smith, and, and it's weird cause I respect him so many different ways, a really, really fun, tasteful guitar player. Absolutely. I mean, some of the best licks, some of the most, you know, the boys don't cry lick, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's so many great licks all taste like you know you said earlier you know you couldn't get behind some of the the licks of Betty Van Halen because they weren't melodic or tasteful Robert Smith is the antithesis yeah. of that you're never gonna hear him play a raped arpeggio he's no. just gonna play these beautiful like you know almost surf licks almost venture-esque yeah. almost you know That's surf fair. licks with a goth feel you know? you know what it is I think it, 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 what it really comes down to is you can be melodic without having great hooks. And I think I always felt like cure. I feel the same way about the cure that I feel about REM. I always get about 45 seconds into a song going, I like this. This is cool. Why don't I listen to this more often? And then I find myself getting bored because it never has that thing that, that it hook wise. And I have a hard time. I remember having a disagreement with somebody sometime where I said, they said, how can you like Morrissey? And I said, well, I think his hooks are good. And they say, well, Friday I'm in love is a, is a very, very poppy song. And I said, well, you can be poppy without having a, just an amazing hook that won't leave you alone. And I feel like that's the one place I've always found that Robert Smith came a little bit short. Well, I think their arrangements are a bit strange when it comes, if you're trying to really hold on to a melody, like, uh, like pictures of you, that song. I think that's such a beautiful song. One of the be- one of the best songs you know? for sure. Yeah, and it's just one big verse, and then a little bit of a change, and then a verse again. You know, and it's just this, just beautiful, haunting. Yeah, I mean that song. It's one of those songs you listen to. You stop what you're doing, and the song puts you inside of it. Yeah, and that is a great song. Whereas, you know, I think you, you could be right. I, I hear a lot of hooks in the cure, so I'm trying to hear what you're saying, but I yeah. don't really hear what you're saying. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. No, it's just a, that's the beauty of music. It's just a, it's just a mean thing. Okay, I, you know what? Maybe we're gonna get through 16 of these because I, I I have four more and none of them warrant huge huge uh, comment, but I, I I do think oh we'll 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 change we'll that. Find a way. <laughs> okay, okay. Here's here's something that I never thought that I would be saying to anyone anywhere ever on planet Earth. I think I have found something I like about and from the Grateful Dead. Okay. That is amazing. I know. Nobody's more surprised than me, Mark. But here's the thing. I feel like I should have seen it coming. It's acoustic. They put out this, I guess it's like a double live thing. Actually, let me make sure that I get the right version of this. And, uh... Yeah, I think I can genuinely say that I don't hate it. I think we're maturing, Mr. Mm-hmm. Mike Tolley. I mean, look, I, I I fought the Grateful Dead forever because it was the every rich hippie in Newport Beach loved the Grateful Dead. And I just had a fight against that in my little fake punk rock world. But I went and saw the Grateful Dead because of said beautiful girls in Newport Beach. 
And I enjoyed it. I had a great time. I fought it. I was the only guy sober there. You know, I wasn't into drinking that much. I didn't take any psychedelics. And I enjoyed the show. I could have done without the space bit where people start playing drums and all that for 20 minutes. Other than that, they've got pop songs, ironically. They're just 95 minutes long, you know? Right. So here is checking in at a tidy three minutes and 20 seconds, a live version of a song, I don't know, uh, acoustic from Grateful Dead called Dire Wolf. to that it's very campfirey and fun yeah. you know but to me with the exception of a few songs the grateful dead there's nothing to hold on to yes like it's just kind of and i never was really up for the aesthetic of we just come on with our sandals and shorts and a and an old school 70s vintage Lacoste t-shirt. And I, I just, I, I needed a little bit more out of my superstar bands and the Grateful Dead willing to give. And I was not as willing to participate in a communal vibe necessary to enjoy the Grateful Dead. Yeah, I'm not much of a joiner. Okay, you're right, I'm back. Grateful Dead suck. <laughs> now they're fine, they have yeah, their yeah, place. Yeah. And yeah. I always respected the fact that they were one of the first bands to really start putting on stadium shows. They ushered in the stadium, how to put on the big, huge uh, audio productions. You know, they actually built them themselves. So they kind of, out of necessity, you know, the, the, the mother invention is necessity. They had to learn because they were getting so big how to play these big venues. So they, they got all their freaky psychedelic science majors at Berkeley and they found out how to, uh, you know, provide sound to stadiums. So, all of us should be grateful to them for that. Yeah, no, no it's, pun intended. It, it, it is odd, the the futuristic side of the Grateful Dead, which is such a crazy thing to say, the audio advancements, and I think that they pushed the technology on CDs, if I remember correctly, yep. forward, mastering and all of that, and then I'll say it for the 10 millionth time, there's no internet without pornography and Grateful Dead tape trading. Those are the two things that pushed forward the nascent World Wide Web when it was still a gleam in Al Gore's eye. <laughs> absolutely correct absolutely so i i also have never really known where well i do know where i stand on santana i don't get santana the oye como va stuff and all that it's just not that it it's surprising to me that it enjoys the success that it does in a wide way because it's so outside what like when it's on classic rock stations i'm like really you guys you like you guys liked the zeppelin song and the thin lizzie song and you like this but even that makes more sense to me than his later success. I personally, I, I met Rob Thomas, seems like a nice guy. I thought Smooth was a pretty terrible song, despite being maybe the most successful song that's been like released in my lifetime. Probably. And then in the middle of it all, I find this, which is not Smooth and it's not Oye Como Va. And apparently this was a number 17 song on pop radio, a number two song on rock radio, do you know the song Winning by Santana? I don't. I'm curious to know what he was doing in 1981 because right. I have no idea. Right, exactly. 
Ten times. I absolutely remember that song. Okay. Absolutely. I'm, I'm old enough to remember that. My question to you, Tully, yeah. is who's singing that? Right. So it's always, it's always somebody different. I don't know that he's ever done a lead. Is record. it? Does he sing? Does Santana sing? I know that the big hits, what, Black Magic Woman and the other one, he didn't sing those. Oye, como va? Yeah. yeah he obviously, Oye, como va? Smooth, he didn't sing. Maria, Maria, he didn't sing. You winning know? is a song written by Russ Ballard. And it appeals. It appears that one Alex Ligertwood is the lead vocalist in the Santana band at the point of his twelfth studio album in '81. That was one of his last commercial it, hits until he came back with Rob Thomas. He had a, a, an eighteen-year layoff between that and Smooth. I, you know, I do remember the song, but the last time I heard it was 1981. Yeah, sure. I'll tell you that it's not one of those songs that had legs. But what's interesting about Santana's career, is there another person who doesn't sing and requires other singers who's become a superstar like Santana? Hmm. I mean, when you think of Santana, you think of like a band, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, the only other person that comes to mind, this is a, a random thing, but uh, Mike and the Mechanics had a, a little run of hits and Mike is Mike but, Rutherford, but, but Mike Rutherford didn't sing on those songs. But Paul Carrick sang, didn't he? Didn't, who sang in that? Yeah, well, Paul Carrick at least did The Living Years. But to have like a, yeah, a, a, a band that's named, well, you know, Van Halen, obviously. Right, but but they were a band. You know, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, I'm talking about every time Santana releases a, a product, a single, someone else is singing it. Yeah. It's not him. Yeah. So what's curious is, I guess what I'm trying to say is when you, when you think of Santana, Santana, you think of a band. And you just somehow just assume that he's singing or something. But no. He's a guitar player, and you don't know who's going to be singing this this uh, wealth of songs coming your way. You know, does, does does someone sing Maria Maria and someone else sing I'm Winning? I mean, I don't. I probably doesn't play anymore, but you know what I mean. It's yeah. an interesting, you know. But you know, look, he plays big enough venues; he could probably have a couple people fill in for him. Well, also because we talked about what is Quincy Jones. With all due respect, I'm sure he could he would blow you away if you spent time with him and talked about music, but we tried to figure out what he actually does on records. Well, I questioned at the time, what the hell was Santana doing on smooth, which he didn't write. And he just threw some very admittedly, very tasty licks on his Paul Reed Smith in. And then I really liked the, the single off that next album, the game of love song with Michelle Branch. Michelle Branch. I liked one? a lot better yeah. than, than game of love, but like he didn't write that. And at that point I was like, Oh, he's just Santana. He just stands there. And that's, and that's fun. But like, what the hell did he do on winning? That song doesn't, he didn't write the song. He didn't sing it. It doesn't rest on some incredible riff. No, no. And that's, that goes back to that eighties weird yeah. Frank Stallone rock production. We yes. were talking about yes. that had no, like really guitar strength to it. It had riffs, but not strength to it. And I guess this is my point is that I guess Santana's a great guitar player. Mm-hmm. And I, but Santana has made it as a band. Yeah. I, do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like Santana is this incredible guitar player, but we look at him as a band. It's an interesting dynamic and he's pulled it off. Yeah. God bless the guy, you know, yeah. cause I'm with you. All he did is show up and go, let me burn a riff. All right, go vocals. Go ahead. Hey, Hey Santana, you want to stick around with the vocals? No, yeah. I'm going to go. So, you know what I mean? I it's talk just to my guardian angel Abraxas. Right, right. It's just, a, it's just a phenomenon. He is a phenomenon, you know, yeah. and uh, his karma must be aligned. Yeah, yeah, clearly, clearly. Yeah, he's not hurting anybody. Okay, I have two more songs to play you. We've talked about people 
from big bands making um, perhaps misguided solo albums. At the time, I don't think I was aware that Roger Taylor from Queen had ever mm -hmm. dipped his toe in solo waters, but he did um, fairly memorably in a weird kind of way with this album Fun in Space that he put out back in April of 1981. And I, I think, so the the album flopped it did a tiny little bit of damage in the uk flopped outright in america and there was one very kind of american sounding single that didn't do anything and it's kind of boring this is the song that i think did a little bit of something in the uk called future management You know, it's a perfect example of a guy in a gigantic classic rock band, but who's very social and a man about town in London and knows that punk rock is around and trying to like dip his toes in it. Much like when Eddie Van Halen saw Stiff Little Fingers two nights in a row at the whiskey, like in 81 or whatever. You know what I mean? You're trying to stay cool in the hip thing. And so Roger Taylor makes this record and he's doing all the dissonant kind of stuff that like a post-punk record would do but then he's got to add that ooh, ah, harmonies in there because he can't help himself because yeah. he knows those queen stack harmonies are what it's all about so interesting yeah. I, I unlistenable yeah right unlistenable completely it reminds me did you ever watch the show uh metalocalypse I, I didn't, but I, I know of it. I know it has a fervent fan base. Yeah, I actually kind of think I'm wearing the T-shirt right now. There's the the one of the running jokes is that the bass player doesn't feel like he's taken seriously uh, as his own musical force, <laughs> so he's constantly threatening to do an album with his side project, Planet Piss. <laughs> <laughs> I miss out, man. I better go watch this shit. That's hilarious. Yeah, that to me, that was the debut album from Planet Piss right there. But my that for sure. My favorite thing about Queen, I've said this to you before, yeah. every guy in the Queen, every member wrote a number one song. Yeah. You know, so what what was the need to go outside of Queen? What was clearly a collaborative effort anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, uh the need was look, I I know all the punk guys, they just had a drink with Sid Vicious. You know what I mean? I mean, because Roger Taylor was very much a bon vivant. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. He liked to enjoy those. So we'll do one more of these before I, I let you go. Jim Steinman put out this album in 1981, and the story is interesting for those who don't know Meatloaf. He's he's the guy who wrote the Meatloaf songs. There is no Bad Out of Hell without Jim Steinman, arguably more important to it than Meatloaf himself, and pioneered a really unique style of music that was much more Broadway. Crazy that that stuff hit that it did. The songs are long and, you know, uh, long and winding roads in terms of arrangement. And then Meatloaf kind of lost his voice and lost the plot a little bit. And man, it just goes to show you how quickly the music industry moved back then. We know the Beatles and Stones putting out two albums a year and all that. So the, the, the story is this. Jim Steinman writes the follow-up record to Bad Out of Hell, one of the all-time records, and Meatloaf is not up to recording it, so Steinman goes ahead and releases it, and it, it flops miserably. But later that year, Meatloaf got it together enough 
that Steinman was able to come up with another batch of songs and Meatloaf and that so it's it's like Meatloaf never actually followed up Bad Out of Hell because he put up but but it's by a matter of of months that he wasn't able to do these songs and some of these songs are the songs that became the Meatloaf comeback in the 90s they should have been so, mm-hmm. so that became Bad Out of Hell 3 I think, look, uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here you know. Go. this is released in April of 1981. Jim Steinman, regrettably, on lead vocals. <laughs> Serviceable though, not not terrible. I mean, it's just not Meatloaf. You know, Meatloaf was such a he's larger than life character. But I'm surprised how actually good that sounds. Mm -hmm. Now it leads me to believe how much he really was the factor behind the music. Because you know, there's people that can kind of like sing a little bit of the melody, but they can't really deliver. That man's delivering the vocal performance. You know, if you put me, if you said that was Meatloaf, I would have believed you. Oh, okay. So yeah, that's rock and roll dreams come true. That's one of the. That's one of the big hit songs off of Bad Out of Hell 3 or whatever. And what was that, like 93 or something? It just took him 12 years to do the song he could have done if everybody had just been willing to wait like four months. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And it just shows you what they were doing was something very unique. Because listen, for that to be a hit, when like 91, I think it came out 92, I think it was it was competing with Nevermind oh, and like yeah. Dangerous. And oh, like, crazy. Which yeah. was crazy to see Meatloaf. I mean, I remember it was like the most insane comeback of all time because yes. he didn't really change his style. No. He just did that again. Just cut his hair off. You know? Yeah, and it was the biggest record of the year. So I, I love Meatloaf. He could do no wrong. He was on Celebrity Apprentice with me, and he like, I had lost my dad a couple months earlier, and like he kind of became his paternal figure, and I love the dude. He can do no wrong to me. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful human being. And he got into a fight with Gary Busey, this like one of the all-time reality fights, and I was great. <laughs> there i was right there in front row seat it's amazing i love the loaf and i love when you just learn little details about music that just are such aha moments a couple of the guys from the e street band the keyboardist roy bitten Batan, is also on the meatloaf stuff which is why those keyboard flourishes you think you've heard them somewhere before born to run thunder road it's not your imagination Boy, it's the exact same guy doesn't Dwayne. it make sense the exact it same it's so nicely man yeah and you don't I think mean, those, keyboards when they're done yeah you don't think of those two artists in the same breath whatsoever but when you hear that you're like oh of course they that's, that's the exact same thing happening on both of them it's so true man i i just you just illuminated that fact to me i mean i just you could hear the keyboards the way they just uh, uh tickles them i guess if mm-hmm. you would say you know it's not a constant it's a tickling of if you will that's so a uh, characteristic of springsteen and i never thought in a million years would be me love asking it totally is it absolutely unbelievable is. All right, so this time around we did uh, we did not talk about the we didn't get to modern English the uh, the title track from Mesh and Lace we'll have to wait until I, I, I don't know <laughs> until the next pandemic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the church the birthday party Nick uh, Nick Cave uh, so on and and so forth I will I will let you go we've gone on long enough I thank you as always for your time I know listeners thank you as well. 
Uh, dude, I have so much fun. Just like two dudes chatting about music, and it's so nice to find a place for my useless information to be yeah. appreciated. Same I love here. it. Same here. All right, so we'll do this again soon. Sounds good, Tully. Take, Take care, care my brother.